It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. The term impeachment gets tossed around in our modern era of political infighting, but the process stretches deep into history. It was first used in the U.S. in the colonies. Democratically elected legislators were impeaching those following the British crown. Prolific writer and Harvard Law professor Cass Sunstein. Impeachment came from the 1380s in England. It had nothing to do with democratic self-government. And in the hundred years before the Americans started impeaching the British bosses, impeachment was gone from England as a practice. Today, Sunstein delves into how impeachment became a foundational part of our American political system. He describes the types of offenses that are actually impeachable. In a republic like ours, he says impeachment should be a final weapon for self-defense. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. When you hear impeachment, you may think back to President Nixon, President Clinton, or perhaps even Andrew Johnson, the first impeached U.S. president. Sunstein, who's the most cited law professor in the country, says the mechanism of impeachment provides a unique window into our republic. It's part of a very small series of innovations in the American experiment, he says, that grew out of the American Revolution. Sunstein was on stage in June. He sets up his lecture by stepping back into American history. A few minutes in, he gets to impeachment, the subject at hand. Here's Cass Sunstein. Uh, if you told me in as late as December 2016 that I'd actually be working on the topic of impeachment, I would have thought it was more probable that I was trying out for the Olympic equestrian team. Um, uh, but something very important happened in January, uh, which is that uh, I had a choice of, maybe not be what you're thinking, I had a choice with my wife Samantha Power of exactly where to live in Concord, Massachusetts. And as you're about to see, that's the actual motivation for this book. Uh, the choice was, do you buy, imagine you're moving from one city to another, and the new city is Concord, Massachusetts, do you buy a house which is finished in 2016, it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's elegant, it has air conditioning, and the air conditioning works, everything is ideal and is functional, and you know your children are not going to get too cold in winter or too hot in summer. Choice one. Choice two, a house bought in 1763 where the upstores floors are tilted like this, so you think you are suffering from acute vertigo, where the entryway has a ceiling which is built for people who were, I think, the stars of the Wizard of Oz, really, really small, where if you ask an architect, as we did, whether this is the house to buy, the, face on his, the expression on his face had such sadness and gravity that it was as if he was a doctor telling you that you have some really incurable disease. So the question was, 2016 or 1763? The 1763 house, um, as you might imagine, conquered 1763, has a history. And the history entails the fact that in April 19, 1775, remember that day if you would? That's the day that Paul Revere rode into Concord. The reason he rode, and I've spent decades on the Constitution and I hadn't fixed on this, the reason he rode, and we're about to celebrate America's uh, birthday, the reason he rode was 700 British soldiers were going to Concord. The reason they were going to Concord was to find, obliterate, and arrest, respectively, houses, munitions, and people who were storing munitions in Concord. And at this house with the tilted Twilight Zone floors, at this house, six of the 35 barrels of powder and bullets were hidden. The guy's name Ephraim Wood, and he was a farmer. Um, the British came there. The Americans had a spy. 
Wood managed to escape to a river in Concord, carrying some of the munitions with him. Miraculously, the house was not burned down. After the revolution was won, with Wood as one of the embattled farmers who defeated miraculously the British invasion in Concord on that day. He was one of the British, one of the uh, survivors. The house survived too, where he was one of five people, I just discovered this two days ago, five people who invented a concept called the Constitutional Convention, invented in Massachusetts a precursor to what created our own nation. Keep in mind, if you would, the words embattled farmers. And I hope as you keep those words in the, in the mind, uh, there's some emotion in that, because that's not a natural phrase. It actually comes from a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who invented also, to my amazement, the term, the shot heard round the world. That's not Bobby Thompson's, you know, unbelievably important home run. It was the shot in Concord, which uh, was preceded by a line about embattled farmers, and Ephraim Wood was one of them. Abraham Lincoln wrote in a time of deep national polarization when he was 28 years old, in 1835, he wrote, we need at this time to uh, think about the American Revolution. Our country's falling apart, he said, in the 1830s. And we've lost the revolution. They're all dead, basically. And they're now past history. We need to recall that past history, said Lincoln, and understand what the revolution was about. It had content. There were two things, said 28-year-old Honest Abe. One is self-government, and the other is civil rights. Okay, uh, so uh, here's a story which um, uh, you may have heard, but I'm hoping you're going to hear it new with the content which I've recently discovered is a little thicker than what I thought was the actual content. After the American Constitution was produced, Benjamin Franklin, then 81 years old, was asked by someone, she actually has a name, Mrs. Powell, uh, what have you given us, a republic or a monarchy? Now, the famous version of the story is, what have you given us? Not a republic or a monarchy. That's the real version, a republic or a monarchy. And Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. What Franklin was urging uh, to the assembled crowd was that the real actors in national history, and that includes you know, everyone who is blessed to have American citizenship, the real actors are the you. And the opposition, as Franklin had it, was between republic and monarchy. And I'm going to try to say a lot about the relevance of that to basically every day in American history. What I've learned over the past few months is that the American battle from roughly 1750 to the Constitution's creation was between those two concepts, republic and monarchy. And the American Revolution was fought to... Uh, uh, to vindicate republicanism. Um, when we see pictures of the American founding, it looks, doesn't it, look like very dry, desiccated old men. And it, one of the great things about the musical Hamilton is it exposes the lie in that. So Patrick Henry, who said one famous line, actually had a lot of famous things to say. Uh, the year before the embattled farmers won the first battle of the Revolutionary War, in which he said, and this is, you can think of this as a metaphor for citizens at every stage, whatever the risk, why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know what course others may take, but for me, give me liberty or give me death. Okay, a few blocks from here, there's one of the original versions of the Declaration of Independence. I just discovered this 15 minutes ago. You can buy it. It's expensive, but it's there. And the line there, of course, is all men are created equal. That's the famous line. And what it uh, kind of signals is that while the American Revolution in the annals of history often is taken to pale 
before the French and Russian revolutions. The British, we're part of the Anglo-American tradition, aren't we? We are at one with them. The Magna Carta precede our Constitution. What is the big deal about? That's a fair question, but it's actually got a good answer, which is our Republican Revolution was radical. It transformed the interaction between ordinary people who used to treat their bosses and economic superiors with a kind of monarchical deference, bowing their heads, the turn-down look. That whole thing was obliterated in a few decades, such that one of the first American historians, a doctor, wrote that people in America stopped being subjects and became citizens. And he described this with amazement. He said it happened in a heartbeat and it changed everything. I was lucky enough to clerk uh, for Thurgood Marshall, Supreme Court Justice and uh, civil rights hero, uh, who told his clerks a story, which is when he met Prince Philip, uh, Prince Philip shook his hand and looked him in the eye and said with some combination of mischief and disdain, do you want me to tell you what I think of lawyers? <laughs> and, and Marshall responded, only if you want me to tell you what I think of princes. <laughs> okay, Marshall, in saying that, was a direct descendant of the American Revolution, which was against the monarchical heritage. Bob Dylan, latest Nobel laureate, uh, even the President of the United States has to stand naked. That's in the same line. Okay, what I want to suggest, this is the first you're going to hear about impeachment. I know it's been a delay. Here's impeachment. The famous shot in the, heard around the world was a gun. But the initial shots heard around the world were impeachments by the American democratically elected legislators of um, followers of the crown who were executing the orders of the crown. And the Americans responded by doing something astounding in the colonies. They impeached their British bosses formally. Now, what made that astounding was impeachment came from the 1380s in England. It had nothing to do with democratic self-government. And in the 100 years before the Americans started impeaching the British bosses, impeachment was gone from England as a practice. It had been eliminated. But the Americans seized on it to such an extent that John Adams said before the revolution that impeachment is one of the fundamental rights and liberties of British subjects. Okay, now that's the clue. It's like a canary in a coal mine or a kind of key that unlocks, I think, a room that's been left uncharted. And that's what I'm going to try to do in the remainder of these remarks. Okay, after the revolution was won, we had Articles of Confederation. This was not a promising term for an enduring nation. The articles did start with the word, we are the United States of America, but immediately kind of took it back, saying every state retains its sovereignty and basically the nation can't do anything. That's not promising for United States. At the same time, there were two things that bear on the relationship between what the revolution was fought for and Lincoln's two notions, self-government and civil rights, and the impeachment mechanism. And the signals are there was no executive at all. That's not an accident in a nation that had been fighting to eliminate a king. A nation without an executive authority. At the same time, as soon as the nation was freed, the state started having constitutions, and most of them had impeachment, bringing forward the original shots heard around the world, but Americanizing the mechanism as a form of democratic control of democratically elected officials, and republicanizing impeachment, republicanizing in the republic, not monarchy way, Okay, that's what happened. Okay, so uh, Alexander Hamilton had a smashing victory at Philadelphia, the Constitutional Convention. The smashing victory was to uh, convince the delegates that we should have not only an executive, but a unitary executive. Article 2, Section 1 starts, executive power is vested in a president of the United States. That seems innocuous. It's fighting words. 
the people who opposed it said, you are creating an elective monarchy. And John Dickinson, one of the most brilliant and important thinkers in the revolutionary period said, you can't do this in a republic. They're fatally inconsistent. Now notice if you would that the victory by Hamilton immediately recalled both to the delegates and eventually to America uh, uh, the specter of betrayal that our war, what the embattled farmers had fought for, was being turned upside down. And that's where impeachment came in. The initial question was, is there going to be impeachment? And here we have a real battle of the titans with three categories of titans. There was a titan who got crushed, Roger Sherman, one of the most um, subtle thinkers in the founding period, who Jeff Jefferson said, Roger Sherman never made a mistake. Well, at least the delegates thought he made a mistake on this one. He said the Senate should be able to impeach the president for anything at all. And he said that's crucial as a way of avoiding the monarchical legacy. If the Senate thinks the president has to go, the president has to go. That was a well-articulated position, and to read it now is to think, whoa, were they on top of what was going to happen to their country. But it, got, it did get crushed. And the reason it got crushed was also simple. What happens to the separation of powers? If the Senate can get rid of the president on whatever grounds it likes, then forget about it. We don't have separation of powers anymore. Charles Pinckney and Rufus King had a second position, which was there shouldn't be any impeachment. The president can be elected. The president is politically accountable. The president has a four-year term. It's not at all like England. This impeachment mechanism will wreak havoc with what we're trying to do. The respondents were George Mason and James Madison, and Mason was the most eloquent, saying, shall any man be above justice? Above all, should that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? Shall the man who has practiced corruption, and by that means procured his appoint in the first instance, be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt? Okay, that resolved it. We're going to have impeachment. Then the question became, impeachment for what? And that's, I think, the most relevant question for citizens right now, whether or not any contemporary politician seems to you worthy of it or judge. That's the big one. And here's the entire debate. By the time they fixed on the issue impeachment for what, the constitutional text, believe it or not, said treason and bribery. Those are the grounds, treason and bribery. George Mason said basically the Philadelphia equivalent of WTF. He said, are you kidding? Treason will not reach many great and dangerous offenses. Attempts to divert the Constitution may not be treason as above defined. And he moved immediately to insert a word, maladministration. He didn't make up that word. That word came from many of the state constitutions, which explicitly said we can get rid of officials for maladministration. But James Madison didn't like that at all. And Madison, who could be right, pages and pages of beautiful prose could also use a sentence as a knife, and here's his knife, so vague a term will be equivalent to a tenure during pleasure of the Senate. That's devastating, isn't it? Saying, you're, you're Sherman. Morris, who was really smart, said, might be okay, let's, let's figure it out. And then Mason, the great George Mason, rapidly said, okay, not maladministration, other cry crimes and misdemeanors. And guess how much discussion they had of the meaning of that phrase? None. Not a word. High crimes and misdemeanors was the cavalry that came in to rescue a very difficult situation without even a line of discussion of what this meant. Okay, Hamilton during the ratification debates had something to say in The Federalist. And he said, we're speaking of the abuse or violation of public trust. 
they are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. That's a packed phrase. If you unpack what Hamilton was about and others who spoke in terms, those terms were about, there are two, I think, surprises. The biggest surprise and the most important is that we're not talking about crimes at all. We're talking about a violation of public trust. That need not be a crime. If the president says, I'm going to pardon all police officers who use force, that's impeachable. It's not a crime. If the president says, I'm going to go to Paris for the next six months because I'm kind of tired and need a break, that's a violation of public trust, and it's impeachable, though it doesn't violate the criminal law. So what Hamilton made entirely clear was that crime is not a necessary condition for impeachment, which is to suggest that Speaker Pelosi, who has done so many admirable things, made a terrible blunder in seeing relatively, saying relatively recently, the question is whether a president has committed a crime. That is not the question. The debate at the convention and Hamilton's suggestion here, his translation here, suggests also that Gerald Ford made an awful mistake. And actually, we have on the premises of the Aspen Institute, uh, I'm not going to name him, but he is, in my view, the most distinguished American historian of the constitutional period, living and possibly living or dead. And he told me at breakfast, well, they can impeach the president for whatever reason they want the House. No, absolutely not. That position lost. It has to be an abuse or violation of the public trust. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Harvard Law professor Cass Sunstein on impeachment. Sunstein's resume is long. Besides teaching law, he served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President Obama. He's been involved in constitution-making and law reform activities in a number of nations, and his latest book is called Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. Coming up, he goes over who's been impeached as president and whether the reasons for impeachment were just. Sunstein. In the ratification debates, Massachusetts, I like to think, uh, not coincidentally, had the most powerful discussion of what high crimes and misdemeanors would be. And it's about protecting liberties and the rights of free men. And what's beautiful about that is, and Massachusetts was not unique on that, is Massachusetts made the most direct link in the ratification debates between the embattled farmers, the revolution, and the impeachment power. While Massachusetts was direct, all over the ratification debates are fears of a president who would be an elected monarch and a kind of uh, passionate insistence that the impeachment mechanism march hand in hand with the separation of powers, the limited four-year term, the uh, rights that are listed in the Constitution, and the um, other constraints on the president to ensure that we wouldn't get that. Okay, a good summary is that gross abuse of presidential authority, egregious misuse of distinctly official power, or gross neglect, those are the bases for impeachment. That's what we're talking about. Okay, here are three tests, just to get a little more particular. Andrew Johnson was the first impeached president. He followed Abraham Lincoln. Do you know what Johnson was impeached for? He was impeached for firing his Secretary of State in violation of the Tenure in Office Act, and the Tenure in Office Act said you can't fire cabinet officials. Johnson, who is toward the bottom of any list of the best presidents, Johnson said, yeah, right. There's a unitary presidency. Remember what they did? I get to hire and fire my people. So I'm going to fire the Secretary of State. Congress at the time not only forbade him from doing that, but also said that 
it is a high crime or misdemeanor to fire the Secretary of State. That was in the law, which suggests they were baiting him and trying to engineer impeachment. They succeeded. Okay, here's the, uh, the good news about the Johnson impeachment and the bad news in terms of the legitimacy of the process. The good news is that the impeaching House of Representatives was rightly focusing on abuse of presidential authority as the foundation of the clause. That's correct. The bad news is that Johnson hadn't committed an impeachable offense. He had acted consistently with his constitutional power, and even if he wasn't right on it, he was right, as it happened, he had a very good faith argument. And if you look at multiple presidents in American history, including some of the most beloved, they've acted on an understanding of their constitutional authority, which isn't right. That's not a high crime or misdemeanor. That's a mistake. So the Johnson one gets an X. The Nixon one is a lot more complicated. Four articles of impeachment proceeded to committee votes in the, in the Judiciary Committee before Nixon resigned. The first is he cheated on his taxes. Big time. $400,000 worth while president of tax cheating. Now, $400,000 back then in contemporary dollars is, I think, $700 billion, if we adjust. So that was big tax cheating. But it wasn't an impeachable offense. If the president cheats on his taxes, even as president, he's a tax cheat. That's a crime. It's not an abuse of presidential authority. It's not what they were thinking about. It's a pretty bad abuse if it's 400000 worth. But no, which is to suggest criminality is not only not a necessary condition for impeachability, it's not a sufficient condition for impeachability. Okay, also with respect to Nixon, they went after him, and on this one, the Judiciary Committee voted in favor because he resisted subpoenas. That's not the strongest one for impeachment. If a president resists subpoenas, it's possible he has a legitimate reason to resist a subpoena, or it's possible that he doesn't. Let's make it as bad as possible for a president. Suppose he has resisted subpoenas without having a right to do that. Is that what Hamilton's talking about? No. We're not talking about invasion of civil liberties or civil rights or of systematic refusal to comply with the laws or of refusing to your, do your duty. It's something that involves an interbranch skirmish in which the president is maybe acting in bad faith, but we're not in the domain for which the Revolutionary War was fought. The third count against Nixon was stronger, and we're going to get to strongest. The third article of confederation, uh, the third article of impeachment was that Nixon had systematically covered up the break-in of the Watergate apartment in the sense that he asked the CIA to foil the FBI. He asked uh, his witnesses to lie and shut up. He paid them to lie and shut up. He systematically prevented the American people from knowing about an illegal burglary, which wasn't just any burglary, it was spying by his own re-election committee on the opposing party. Okay, I think at first glance, now we're talking. <laughs> at, at second glance, even that is a little bit harder because the impeachment article was not for the initial break-in, which would be impeachable. That's an abuse of authority to distort the political process. But a cover-up, the reason we're probably talking is enlisting the apparatus of the federal government to prevent disclosure to the American people of a distortion of their political processes, that's probably good enough. But the fourth one is the one to keep our eye on. The fourth one was President Nixon had in multiple ways enlisted the federal government so as to root out and punish his political enemies. He had spied on people to find out who they were with the goal of uh, sanctioning them in some way. He'd used the Internal Revenue Service to try to harass people who were his political opponents. 
that sort of thing, now we're squarely in the ballpark of Philadelphia. I hope you're thinking now that, the, that whether you like President Clinton or not so much, that impeachment was uh, a shameful violation of the constitutional responsibilities of the House of Representatives. This is not to say that presidential perjury or presidential obstruction of justice is good or excusable, but in both cases they involved sexual conduct by the President of the United States. In one case it might have been a violation of the civil rights laws before he was President, but in neither case does it come close to the sort of thing that Hamilton and Madison and Mason were concerned about. Might have had a violation of the criminal law, but certainly not a violation of the high crimes and misdemeanors prohibition. Okay, here's one way to, uh, to get clear on it. There was some discussion in the ratification debates of what happens if the president commits some crime that has nothing to do with being president. And the view stated was, that's not impeachable. He can be held subject to that through the criminal law after he's in office, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay, uh, what I'm uh, suggesting is that the, the word, very word impeachment sounds kind of unfamiliar and, and British, doesn't it, and uh, dusty, but it does provide a unique window onto our republic. It's part of a very small um, series of innovations in the American experiment that grew out of the Republican Revolution. What the framers thought was, we're going to have a powerful presidency, but we're going to have a four-year term, electoral control, and impeachment. And the last three are indispensable quid pro quos for the first. You can think of impeachment as an important thing in itself or as a metaphor for what Justice Brandeis said America needs to avoid, which is the greatest menace to liberty, which is an inert people. And when Brandeis said that, I don't know if he had Franklin's response uh, in mind, but it's the same kind of arc of Republican thinking. So when things are working well, or well enough, we the people get to cast our votes and love our families and live our lives. We don't need to think about embattled farmers. By the way, of those 50-odd people whose signatures you can see a couple blocks away, uh, they pledged their lives their, and their honor. Uh, 12 of them died. That's a pretty big percentage of 50-odd. They actually died. Two of them who didn't die, they lost their sons, and not sure how many people in the room have sons or who have sons who have fought in the war, but you know, um, th th this, was a, this was a commitment. We don't have to think about that, except maybe on July 4th, we, we owe it to our forebears. We certainly don't need to focus on the impeachment mechanism. But if we're going to do what Franklin urged, probably with a prayer, which is to keep our republic, we need to know about that mechanism. It's our fail-safe, it's a sword, and it's a shield, and it's our final weapon for self-defense. Cass Sunstein's newest book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, was released this month. We highlighted another new book in the podcast last week, Leonardo da Vinci. Because he is the world's greatest genius, period. The most creative genius, period. But he's also somebody who, as you read about him, you say, oh, I could be more like that. Author Walter Isaacson talks about what we can learn from the artist in our episode, The Imagination of Leonardo da Vinci. Find it on Apple Podcasts by searching Aspen Ideas to Go. Back to the show. Next, Cass Sunstein takes questions from the audience. So questions, comments. Is it conceivable that the Supreme Court could weigh in on the meaning, on the interpretation of the 
Yeah, it's a great question. The overwhelmingly likely answer is there's no appeal process. And the reason would be there's a, a small set of constitutional provisions that uh, the Supreme Court says presents political questions, which means the Constitution authoritatively allocates them to other branches. And since impeachment is so clearly in the House with conviction by the Senate, the notion that the Supreme Court could say there aren't legitimate grounds would be uh, have an awkward fit. There's a, another thing that could be said that supports that conclusion, which is there was a lot of debate about who's going to impeach, and Madison said it should be the Supreme Court. And there was an explicit, it should conduct the trial, there's an explicit decision not to. The reason it's not quite 100% clear is if you had a, a crazed impeachment, meaning an impeachment for grounds that had no plausibility, then to say it's a political question would be less obviously correct, because it would say, he said, there's no high crime or misdemeanor here. But as I say, the, the idea that there's uh, appeal to the Supreme Court or the federal judiciary, it's kind of a, a lawyer's trick, I think. And the basic answer is no. So to confirm something you said and, and ask a question, if a president commits a crime while in office, um, can he be or she be um, prosecuted for that while in office and assuming that and if convicted, are you suggesting that if it does not rise to what you've described earlier, it is not impeachable? Second point, if a president is at a pattern of lying to the American people, is that action um, an impeachable um, offense? Good. Uh, okay, they're, they're, I think they both have pretty clear answers, which is uh, the president cannot be criminally prosecuted while in office. Uh, that's probably the best inference from the impeachment clause itself, which suggests that's the remedy, and also for the president to conduct his business as president while being subject to criminal prosecution. You know, there are a lot of people who can compartmentalize, but that's not easy. Um, so there's that. If, if a president lies on some occasions uh, or is uh, fairly accused of lying, not impeachable. But if you have a systematic liar uh, who is lying all the time, then, then, we're, then we're in the ballpark of uh, misdemeanor, meaning bad action. The news spoke about the 25th Amendment as a way to remove a president. Is, is, is that really true, or can you, can you speak on that? Okay, so let me tell you a little story. Uh, when I was 28 years old, less, 26 years old, I was in the Department of Justice um, under Reagan. And shortly after Reagan was elected, uh, my boss, Reagan's choice for assistant attorney general, said, I need you to write a memorandum on the 25th Amendment. And uh, while I didn't say anything, the word bubble was, what the heck is the 25th Amendment? And then I looked it up, and it said what I'm about to tell you. And I thought, why? You know, Reagan was 70 at the time, but in great health. And uh, the 25th Amendment is basically what happens if the president is unable to do his job, do the tasks of the president. And a month later, uh, Reagan was shot. And uh, the lawyers on the fifth floor of the Justice Department we were watching the television, which was saying, he's fine, don't worry. It was an assassination attempt, but the nation dodged a bit bullet, so to speak. And my boss tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, come into my office. And he said, Reagan's in much worse trouble than what they're saying. And uh, we hope it's going to be as okay, but it could get grave. And I need you to write two memos, one of which Reagan signs, turning over the office to the vice president, the other of which the cabinet and the vice president signed, turning office to the vice president. And I said, you want me to write that? And, and he said, well, there, the, no one else is going to be in the Justice Department. We're all going over to the White House, the leadership. So, so I, I remember this as if it was 10 minutes ago. It was a manual typewriter, and I was typing it out. My hands were trembling as I put in the spaces for the signatures. 
Okay, so how so I bizarrely I have some experience with the Twenty Fifth Amendment. The 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 grounds are the the key word is unable, unable to perform the tasks of office. And what they had in mind was a heart attack where you're either know you are out of it or you are out of it. If Kennedy had survived the assassination attempt but was in devastatingly bad health, what then? And so what you need for, to trigger the 25th Amendment is um, some sort of physical or cognitive problem that's so severe that the president acknowledges, I can't do this anymore, or that his own team uh, says is a sufficient basis for him not being able to continue. The latter scenario is most unlikely, and it creates an awkward relationship with the impeachment clause because his own team is not likely to do it. Yes, even if things have gotten very grave. So for any president, the 25th Amendment is uh, a really narrow um, thing for, you know, you've, you've, you can't move, you can't think. Something that's in, at least in the ballpark of that. Now, Madison said that incapacity was a basis for impeachment. He was very clear on that, which also goes to the point about high crimes and misdemeanors. Madison thought... Madison even said in the first, and this is relevant to the relation of the 25th Amendment, he said in the first uh, uh, congressional debates, he said if the president fires uh, people who are excellent, he can be impeached. Because, why? Because that's maladministration. Madison had resisted the word maladministration. He invoked it, which suggests that he maybe thought there was some something in the concept that was right, it's just the term was too vague to be a lawyer's term. Okay, so that suggests, I think Madison was wrong on the maladministration point and wrong on the incapacity point. To disagree with Madison on a point of constitutional law is probably the most foolish thing I've ever done. But uh, the reason is that high crimes and misdemeanors, they aren't about incapacity. They're about more like you know, egregious misconduct or neglect of duty. So if you have someone who's incapacitated, his cabinet won't do anything about it, but he's making crazy decisions, then we're in impeachment territory. Yeah, yeah. Could you explain how the emoluments clause might be invoked to uh, this current administration? Well, I, as, as again, I'm, I'm feeling that uh, when law professors become pundits about current things, they should take a bath and a shower, and um, if they're Catholic, go to confession, and if they're not Catholic, maybe convert. Uh, 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 so, but I will say about the emoluments clause, uh, the debates in the constitutional, con in the ratification debates, one of the ones, I think it was either North Carolina or Virginia, very specifically referred to a violation of the Emoluments Clause as an impeachable offense. So I think that one's not hard. If we had, you know, a president who was accepting money from other countries in violation of the Emoluments Clause, that would, that's, that's definitely ballpark. And I, I really don't mean that as a comment on any political figure. I, re I really don't. I really don't. I was wondering what the institutional thinking was to only have two impeachments for the first 200 years. And then did the Clinton impeachment change the attitude to where going forward impeachment may be viewed as just another political exercise, sort of like the Bork did, uh, hearings did for the Supreme Court justices? Okay, that's, that's fantastic. So the, you could have thought, and some people thought at the time, that the Clinton impeachment was going to revive impeachment as a kind of political weapon and lower the bar in a way that would be uh, altering. It, it doesn't seem that that's happened. So that uh, we've had some, Bush and Obama had a lot of prominent uh, people in the House of Representatives against them but they never launched a serious impeachment investigation. So the, the absence of, uh, of use since Clinton, I think, suggests we're not there and probably not going to be there. And there are political dynamics that explain that, I think, that if, if the House has a significant number of people in the same party as the president, 
impeachment's going to be very hard to get. And that suggests the Clinton thing was maybe, maybe a one-off. In terms of the infrequent use of the impeachment mechanism, um, Hamilton had a debate with Tocqueville, not explicit, but they had very different views. Um, and Hamilton uh, won. Like Hamilton won as if a professional baseball team plays against a grade school team. Tocqueville thought, Americans are going to be impeaching presidents all the time. It's too easy. Hamilton thought, no, think of the politics. Not going to have many. And the reason we haven't had impeachments more often, it could be because we've gotten lucky with our presidents or the rest of the Constitution has worked well, or it could be that there has to be a national consensus, kind of, that the person has done something very grave. And given that the person won election, to get a national consensus to that effect is hard. Uh, could you address um, the Supreme Court ruling re regarding the Paula Jones case and how that made the president prosecutable for um, some things while in office? Okay, so Paula Jones brought a civil action against the president for uh, sexual harassment. And it was important that that wasn't a prosecution, it was a civil action. And the, the question is whether there's something in the Constitution that implicitly, because there's nothing that explicitly, forbids you from suing a president until he, he leaves office. And you'd have to make an inference from something in the Constitution. You could say, as pre the president said, that the vesting of the executive power in the president means that he can't have that degree of diversion from his job that a civil action would entail. And the court says, the, the Supreme Court said there are lots of ways of handling that. You can have continuances. You could say the president can't be you know, deposed at a time when he's trying to protect national security. And so we, the court saw it as a pinprick into the, the presidency rather than as a bomb. It turned out to be a bomb, but not for the reason that it was a diversion to have a civil action, but because it got caught up in something uh, larger. So the idea is people can sue the president. A lot of people think that that case was wrong and the court should, should have said the president has immunity from civil action. But the history, brief it is, as it is since Clinton, is broadly supportive of the court's conclusion that civil actions against the president don't cause a, prob a serious problem for executive authority. C criminal action would be doubly different First different in the sense that the impeachment mechanism probably is best read to suggest this is the way you get rid of somebody who's done something terrible. And if it's not terrible, then prosecute them after. And the other is more functional, that um, to be criminally prosecuted is a horror show. To be involved in a lawsuit is not fun. And to subject the president to that kind of not fun is not in violation of the constitutional scheme a horror show for him that could hurt the rest of us. How's he going to do his job? What is the role of the Chief Justice in an, an impeachment trial? Okay, so the Chief Justice presides over the trial, uh, which means that if there are rulings on questions of evidence and such, the Chief Justice gets to make them. The contemplation of the system, which is consistent with how things have unfolded, is that that seems less ceremonial than it actually is. It's pretty ceremonial that the kinds of questions that an impeachment trial in the Senate raises have a kind of mechanical quality. So there isn't a lot of a high level of discretion such that the Chief Justice is really on the spot. So modest, highly visible, uh, an indicator of the gravity of the, the occasion. I've been sitting here for about 20 minutes conjuring up a way to not have to live four years with this president uh, and or wait for him not to be reelected. And uh, I'm, I, I'm convinced that the 25th Amendment is not going to work yet. Uh, but impeachment is still on my mind. So I want, to want you to address two things that I think are going on presently. He is being sued for fraud, civil fraud, and a lot of the and some of the matters that he's been engaged in commercially. 
He's also being sued, I believe, because of, uh, he will not relinquish the lease on the post office in Washington, D.C., uh, which I, I thought there was a contractual or statutory obligation that he must do that, and he has thus far refused. Paula Jones was a settled case. There was no judgment of misconduct, a willful tort or uh, assault. So with what we have now, based on the, his, the, the uh, legal history, is there anything that we can develop from those two events, the fraud, civil fraud, a finding as a matter of law of guilt, or the violation of a statute uh, as relates to the post office? Okay, so uh, uh, how to put this? Uh, many millions of Americans voted for President Trump. Um, I was brought to Aspen by uh, someone who has Agent Orange fought in Vietnam War. His daughter died of Agent or Orange because uh, she had cancer, which came from Vietnam. And uh, uh, he's a disabled uh, Uber driver. And, uh, uh, and he said, I, w I wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I voted for President Trump. He said, I hope he's going to be good. And I, I said, what, what appealed to you about him? And he said, really, he promised to do something for vets. And uh, you know, the thought of uh, wanting to impeach him in the face of millions of fellow citizens like that person, I, I wouldn't want to go there. If the president has done something that's on the order, if any president has done something on the order of what Madison and Hamilton were thinking about, then remember Hamilton's plea to us, a republic if you can keep it. Uh, the Jones thing, the lawsuit wasn't even plausibly impeachable. The grounds for impeachment was the uh, multiple acts of cover-up. That was Article 2. That's better than the lawsuit, but that is not a legitimate basis for impeachment. So a civil suit for something that doesn't involve abuse of distinctly presidential authority, we're, we're not there. If we have something that involves, you know, something where constitutional rights are invaded, where there's systematic lying, where there's systematic violation of the law, then, you know, uh, think of Patrick Henry and what he had to say. Thank you all. Cass Sunstein's latest book is Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide. He has authored hundreds of articles and many books, including Nudge and The World According to Star Wars. Find links to his work on our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's episode was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.